0: Uh, I think people want their leaders to be authentic these days. I think that people want leaders who have had lived experience that can be flawed and difficult. No one wants to be led by a person who behaves as though they've never had hardship and doesn't feel challenges. And so I think that helps uh, helps me with credibility in the sector as well, that I I see how sport can be run. I've experienced how it can be done poorly. Um, and how it can be done brilliantly and I want to help contribute to make some of those changes.
1: Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders and next level gurus. This is the active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong. And now your host Craig Johns, and Ben Gathercole.
2: On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, we have the honor and pleasure of speaking with a wonderful CEO who is driven to positively change the way we think, believe, and act. Known for her dedication, commitment, and ability to solve problems she transformed her career from improving the health and well-being of people as a doctor in the medical industry to being a professional athlete racing to put food on her plate, and now as an up and coming leader in the sport industry. Her medical career included being a physician at Epworth Health Check and Epworth Breast Service, as well as paving her way to being a medical expert on Network 10's The Project, a co-host on the Everyday Health, doctor on the AFL Injury Report, and tutor at Deakin University Medical School. Not only is she a well-educated, talented physician and an astute businesswoman, but she is also an impressive cyclist setting the UCI woman's hour record of 46.882 kilometers at sea level, 2008 Australian road cycle time trial champion, and a three times Australian representative at the World Road Cycling Championships. She also found time to complete the Hawaii Ironman World Championships and also seven times gold medalist at the Australian Rowing Masters Championship. She is clearing the fields and creating new pavements as the first ever CEO for the Office for Women and Sport and Recreation at the Victorian Government. This year, she wrote a book, Life and Death, A Cycling Memoir. We feel very energised and excited to introduce and welcome you to our very special guest, Bridie O'Donnell. Bridie, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much, Craig. Great to be here.
2: So I'm very impressed, you know, what an amazingly diverse life you've led so far. Let's take a trip down journey lane and start with what was life like for you as a child?
0: I think probably my sister and I could describe our childhood as idyllic. Um, At the time, we just thought it was normal, but we lived in um, the Sunshine Coast hinterland in a place called the Obi-Obi Valley and we had no TV until we were 12 and 13. So we just kind of hooned around the backyard and invented games and uh, my sister, who was a very dramatic and creative person, um, would, you know, construct Play for us, and she would be the director and the star, and I would usually play a minor character in this <laughs> these roles. <laughs> um, and then we went to primary school in Mapleton, a little town up on the um, the Blackall Range, and then finally a high school, both in um, Nambour and then uh, in Brisbane when my parents separated and we moved down to Brisbane to live with my mum. So we we had great parents. Um, they say that you know the beginning of your life and the parents you choose is key to success. And I was very lucky that I I chose some great parents who really focused on education, doing our best, you know, being versatile, being good citizens. My my mum was a social worker, my dad was a primary school teacher, and all of their lives and careers was about giving back and supporting community and, you know, doing your best rather than being the best. And at the time, you don't necessarily know any different, but I realize now just how fortunate I was um, and am still to have the mum and dad that I did.
2: Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. You know, they you know, obviously say they're involved in education, teaching people. Is, is there some sort of character trait or you know, secret in the family recipe that has drawn you towards inspiring and leading people?
0: Oh, I think that when you're um, ambitious and you want to do well, and I certainly, in high school, wanted to do well. I wanted to get into med school, and when I was an athlete, I wanted to do well. A big part of that is is just around getting the most out of yourself or getting the best out of yourself. And so, um, I think, as a particularly having my dad be my teacher when we went to an independent school, um, he really showed me that that effort. something that was very valuable so you're not just focusing on an outcome being the smartest or the fastest or the best but how much effort did you put in and did you devote yourself to that task you know that's really what education is often about is improvement um, and accomplishment and certainly my mum's work as a social worker was about acknowledging that not everyone has been given the same opportunities the same education the same health Um, And so she was constantly coming home from work, having seen clients who were struggling for money, struggling to have good health or um, struggling with difficult social circumstances. So it gives you that perspective that um, you realise that you're fortunate, uh, that you realise that you, um, you can get the most out of your body as an athlete or the most out of your mind as a student. And they're the sorts of skills that actually help you to cope when things go badly. Because I think all of us recognize that most of our lives are filled with mistakes or failures or disappointments. And certainly as a road cyclist, when you race, you very rarely win. So you have to start to manage your disappointment or your failure in inverted commas by determining what impact you might be able to have through your performance. So, how hard can I try, or how hard can I work at supporting a teammate, or what can my effort be to contribute to an outcome, as opposed to where is my name on the finishers list? Did I win the race, or did I, was I on the podium? And and it's only I, I mean I make it sound like I adjusted to that quickly. I didn't. It's really hard to adjust to being the best at something. And then it's like being the best at school. Then you go to med school, and there's 200 other kids that were the best at school. So the order of things often needs to be reestablished and your ability to cope with that in that real reestablishment of an order and not being the best at something is actually what provides in you all that resilience and adaptability. So failing is good, not getting what you want. These things are good, being disappointed. They're not good at the time, but they actually teach you how to cope and, and strategize to come up with a plan B or C or D.
2: Definitely. So, so what initially drew you towards medicine?
0: Um, I have to confess it was a very superficial (laughs) um, magnet really that I was in a hospital visiting my grandmother who was very unwell. I remember looking around the hospital and being interested about the whole process and lots of people working very hard and being busy and shiny floors and shiny walls. Uh, and I saw a lot of nurses walking around with sort of cardigans over their shoulders. And I thought, oh, that looks cool. I think I want to be a nurse. And then I said to my mum, oh, who's in charge of the nurses? And she said, oh, the doctors. <laughs> and I thought, well, I need to be a doctor then because, uh, you know, I'm bossy. Um, you know, I feel like I know the answers and I'm smarty pants, so I want to be, you know, I want to be in charge.
2: <laughs> we, we but were then ta-
0: as I studied through med school, I, what I loved about it was actually just being part of a team. You know, when you're a junior doctor, you're part of a really important decision-making team to help support people.
2: And that's a great lesson to learn. You know, leading isn't about telling everyone what to do or being the boss. It's around being part of that team network and bringing everyone together, isn't it?
0: Mm, for sure.
2: So, so what do you think we can do as a nation to support an increased focus and preventative strategies for the health and well-being of our community?
0: I think what we've seen with um, significant population growth um, and with an increase in technology and probably even a reliance on um, transport, you know, that's not active, so using cars and public transport, is that the general health literacy of the community has declined. Um, it's not increasing as population increases, and we're not doing that well on a, on a global scale in terms of participation of health and wellbeing activities like daily exercise or eating well. And certainly, um, unfortunately, in Australia, we're still dying of and costing enormous um, amounts of money to the health budget because of preventable lifestyle diseases. And a significant proportion of cancers in Australia are preventable and are lifestyle related, related to alcohol and cigarette intake, lack of physical activity and poor diet. And so where we find it challenging is how can we support community, particularly when we have diverse families now and people who parents um, who might be single parent families or parents who are working hard and don't always have that time. Uh, to play with children after school or to provide them with the nutritional support that they might need. Our responsibility as people who are leaders in government or leaders in the private sector is to support community in the best way, acknowledging that there are lots of people with ample provision, but there are also far more people who don't don't have the right education, the right financial support, the right health to start off with, or even um, the right opportunities to help support their kids. So a big part of prevention and improving health literacy of our community is firstly a bit about walking the talk. I mean, you need to be a healthy person to be able to encourage others to exercise. And that's always been a challenge, I think, for doctors, is that they say to their overweight patients, hey, you need to lose weight. And the patient probably sits across from the doctor who's overweight and drinking too much and not exercising enough and thinks, well, geez, mate, you're telling me. Um, You know, so leading by example is a really powerful thing, I think, for a physician um, or for any member of the community. And secondly, I think um, a big part of it is ensuring that people have the simplest um, but the most practical information and advice on the how the how to do that. So we've seen certainly with Kate Palmer, a CEO of Sport Australia, that Sport Australia are now focusing not just on high performance sport investment, but also on addressing issues around the lack of activity and obesity rates in our population more broadly. So the Find Your 30 campaign is designed to remind people to find ways to be active. And some of that can just be incidental, but there is value in incidental exercise like taking the stairs or, or walking to work or active transport or walking or riding your kids Kids to school. So these are things that I think lots of parts of our community are still struggling to manage, you know, finding time or eating well or providing the right food and activity for their kids. Um, so we can't underestimate how important it is to just start with the basics.
2: And, and, it is, and you're talking about time there. People say, oh, I don't have enough time, but for a lot of people where they live is not too far away from where they work. So they could ride to work, it might take them five or 10 minutes longer. Um, but they've actually put their exercise in the same time they'd be transporting and they get a, a double bang for their buck, I suppose.
0: They can, absolutely, Craig. But what we know about people who aren't active or who don't choose active transport is that they're very good at finding reasons not to. And it's really important for me as a person who feels very comfortable riding a bike to and from work, And someone who's raced in a peloton of 150 women is that my experience is very different from the average woman my age. And the average woman my age is not going down to a bike shop, feeling confident to have a chat with the young man who's selling her equipment, buying the right equipment and understanding What's required, and a great example of that is a young woman in my team, Heather, who I work with. Uh, she's fantastic and healthy and motivated young woman, but wanted to start riding to work and had no idea how she would go about that. Was very nervous about safety, understandably, was anxious about the route that she should choose to work that would be more safe. Was has not yet ridden to work when it's been raining. Uh, and is concerned about what will happen when it gets to be winter and it'll be darker and lights and clothing, etc. So it's important when, we're, when we are very active people and particularly when we're engaged in active transport, we can often project onto others that it's simple. It's simple to just go get a bike, just ride to work, but it's actually not that simple. In the same way that when I, um, and I learned this the hard way from some of my great patients, is that we can look across from a person, a patient of mine who might have been 150 kilograms With pre diabetes and high blood pressure and high cholesterol, and I could sit across from him and think, Okay, I know how you can fix this. Stop eating so much, you know, walk a bit more, decrease your blood pressure. These are all solutions that I'm coming at from a very academic perspective as a person who's never been obese, never had high blood pressure, never had high cholesterol, but also never had those barriers of feeling anxious about my body in a gym or a public exercise scenario. I've never been heckled for being fat. Uh, I know a lot of women that ride bikes that have people yell out of their corners that they're fat and they shouldn't be riding and that they're ugly. And we know that from campaigns around this girl can that women fear judgment of others. And I know that men feel that as well. So Australians have a bit of an issue about we have this myth associated with us that we're this bronzed Aussie culture that are fit and healthy. And internationally, people think of us that way. And yet, as we all know, we're getting fatter, we're getting uh, less active. And people aren't able to find ways. And then we have to look at even the built-up areas of the outer metropolitan suburbs. Um, It's not very conducive to rider safety. I don't know know many parents that would want their kids to ride, even if it was three or four kilometres, to school. They'd be worried about the driveways that intersect with every part of that bike path. So we do need built infrastructure to support this. We need sensitive and empathetic doctors who can have good relationships with their patients to support them, to lose weight and be kind in their advice as opposed to just telling someone to do something because 150 kilo person knows that they're overweight. They understand that that's not ideal for their health, but the how, the how to do that, that is a very challenging uh, series of steps that they probably can't see themselves to fixing.
2: Mm. So, I mean, you know, it's a very complex when you look at the overall scheme of things is, you know, potentially we can look at okay what are some simple things that people can start with that are easy to implement and that don't require big changes in the way people think in society and the infrastructure mm-hmm. that's available mm-hmm. so, so let's transition into your life as an athlete you're a highly competitive triathlete competing at the hawaii iron man world triathlon championships and also a seven times australian masters rowing champion you why did you switch into cycling
0: because <laughs> I was no good at either of those sports. Um, and I, you know, I was, as I said, I was really ambitious. When I started doing Ironman triathlon, I was in a relationship with a person who was a pro triathlete. So it was what he did. It's what all his friends did. And for me, it was a, it seemed like a totally normal environment. And yet I was surrounded by a whole lot of really talented athletes. I would train with a, very, a lot of talented athletes. And so uh, going to Foster Tunkari, which was my first Ironman, and then doing um, other Ironman races, if you didn't win your age group, you weren't, as good as the people around you, even though you're better than 99% of the population who aren't doing a triathlon. But that's not your measuring stick. And so when I started preparing for Ironman and racing Hawaii, my ambition was, okay, I want to win this race one day. Um, And yet I just wasn't talented enough. I hadn't been doing it long enough. I wasn't a good enough runner. Um, and so when I did Hawaii, I did, I did fine. I did sub 11 hours, but, um, I was disappointed because I thought, ah, oh, I don't want to do this to do 11 hours. I want to be competitive, be on the podium. So, um, and similarly with rowing, I was a good rower, but I didn't have the physiology or the length arm and leg length to really make me shine as a heavyweight female rower. And, um, I also came into rowing at a later stage than average. Most people get into rowing at high school and then by the time they're in the under-23 category, they've been noticed and developed by coaches in the sector. And I came to rowing at 26 and I was ostensibly ignored because I wasn't of any value to coaches. And it's a brutal industry, a high-performance sport, and really we have to look at it like that. You know, Medals are KPIs for high-performance coaches and if you're not medal-worthy, they're not interested in you. Um so there was a talent transfer program that the Sports Commission advertised in late 2006 when I'd just done Hawaii and done Iron Ironman and ridden a course record there of 4.48 for the 180K, and they were looking for time trial athletes, so cyclists that were from other sports but that were motivated to try a new event, and that was perfect timing for me. Um, I was, as I said, I'm a goal-oriented person. I'm all about process. I devoted myself to the goal of becoming a good time trial athlete and over the course of a year I went from zero to um, winning the Australian National Championships in Buninyong in 2008 January and I had the support of this incredible coach Donna Rae Zelensky, in Geelong so I used to drive down there three times a week and we just did epic time trial sessions on the wind trainer uh, really focusing on the course and it showed me too how specific training and smart training was always better than just aimless, long kilometres on the bike. And we know that there are a lot of athletes out there that overtrain. Uh, They do too much. They think more is better or they don't train specifically enough. And she really showed me that for specific events, when you train exactly the right way in the right heart rate zones, on the right terrain and the right course and on your time trial bike, that's the way to get good quickly. And I'd certainly got good quickly. Uh, But then, of course, I was ambitious and I I wanted to be a world champion. And I went to three world championships and I was nowhere near near the rainbow jersey. And that, um, yeah, that keeps you humble, that's for sure.
2: Yeah. Cycling is very interesting. You know, like people think it's all glamorous and you you can win often. But, you know, when you're talking about when you've got 150 women in the peloton, say, when you're road cycling, only one out of that 150 gets to win that day. Or if you focus on the team aspect, which happens in a lot of the racing, uh then you know you've probably got a one in 12 or 20 chance of of the team winning so what's you know been able to change that mindset from time trial cycling to road cycling where you may not be in a position to actually win but you're helping someone else try and win
0: well, from my perspective, that was actually very rewarding. Being a domestique and helping someone else win is incredibly satisfying because you know that she can't get to that safe place with two or three kilometres to go before a sprint finish or the safe place, you know, being in third or fourth wheel before a very important climb if she's a climber without you protecting her. So I found a lot of honour and a prestige in being a domestique for a very capable rider who was either a climber or a sprinter and someone far superior to me. And when you're in a high functioning team, and what I mean by that is where everyone understands their roles, where the communication is clear, where where you feel confidence in your leader, that is a most sensational and um, inspiring experience. And to be part of the victories of other writers for me has been momentous and one of the ones that I still remember to this day is riding as a domestic in support of a young woman, Chloe Hosking, who is now a Commonwealth Games gold medalist um, from Gold Coast this year. She's won La Course around the Champs-Élysées. She's won hundreds of races, but at that time she was a 19-year-old, just wunderkind, crazy fast, young, small, powerful rider, bit of a brat. I'm sure she wouldn't mind me saying that. <laughs> and our job in this tour in China was to win the tour by her winning as many stages as possible. And she was sensationally talented, but it was hectic, dangerous, uh, unpredictable, bad weather, you know, 150 women. And I was uh, that was some of my best writing in my life was protecting her, leading her out ensuring she was in the right place in the bunch maintaining morale of the team over these five days and we won we won the two I'd won the time trial on the first day um, my first ever UCI win an average 45k an hour on these crazy roads in China and then she proceeded to win the tour and um, that to me that was a decade ago and I've had some equally memorable performances riding in support of others so it's the same as working in a, you work in a law firm or you work in an engineering firm or you work in government. Your contribution is essential and it's one part of the machine. And the minister or the CEO or whomever is in charge cannot do it without you. And your work is not invisible. If you have a good leader, that, that leader will thank you. They will acknowledge that. Where you see dysfunction, and unfortunately more of my career was spent in dysfunctional teams... Is where that leader doesn't acknowledge it, where people don't assign roles properly, where people don't commit and aren't accountable, or where there's undermining and people are desperately, you know, thinking of themselves over the well-being of the team. And unfortunately, we've all been in workplaces like that as well. So, you know, that is a balance in trying to determine, you know, how long you stay in those environments uh, and how how much you try and change them. That's, that's a really individual call that a lot of us have to make at different times in our lives.
2: So obviously, some great lessons there that you learned as a professional cyclist that now help you as a CEO. Just before we delve into that CEO aspect a little bit further, you know in 2016, you achieved a phenomenal feat in claiming the UCI, UCI Women's Hour World Record. What mind games did you have to play to ensure you stay focused for nearly 200 laps on the track?
0: Uh, I think like any really um, great sporting achievement, um, all the work is done beforehand. All the work from my perspective and the hard part of it was the months leading up to that event to try and become a track cyclist. I'd never ridden on a track before. I'd never raced on a track bike. Uh, I had a lot of skills I had to acquire very, very quickly and so by the time the night came to do the Our World Record, I'd actually overcome most of the difficulties and I was the most relaxed and confident I've ever been in my life. And that's why I feel it's the greatest sporting achievement of my life and why I'll never attempt it again is because that so many factors were aligned and I just nailed every element of it that I needed to, the psychological, the physical, the arousal. You know, we talk about arousal in sport. You don't want to be over aroused where you're agitated and anxious. You don't want to be under aroused where you're fatigued and tired and yawning. Getting all of those things to line up to start an hour world record that is being not only live streamed all over the world to millions of people, but that is being recorded by a UCI official. And if you get a puncture or if something goes wrong during that hour, that's it. You don't. You don't get to do it again. So those were a series of factors that all aligned thanks to luck, preparation, hard work, incredible support from amazing people, coaches, etc. Um, and you don't get those opportunities ever in your life, most of the time, and I am I know how privileged I am that I was surrounded by the right people and that I did apply myself the right way. So the hour itself was uh, an exercise in mindfulness that, again, I I guess I can pat myself on the back that I practised. I practised mindful cues in my mind of things to say over and over to ensure that I wasn't being distracted by pain because really that's what mindfulness is, is acknowledging that something is uncomfortable or painful or frustrating and yet not changing course, continuing on, Instead of being agitated by it or depressed by it or anxious by it, you actually just say, oh, okay, there's a lot of I feel a lot of pain in my legs right now. Oh, well, keep going. I wasn't going to stop. So in many ways, the pain in your legs or the sweat running down your face into your eyes and making your eyes sting, that's kind of irrelevant for that hour because there's nothing you're going to do about it to change those circumstances. So you have to push on uh, and continue on at the pace that you're at.
2: So a lot of resilience and a lot of great skill sets that you can now transfer into your role as a CEO. What are some of the biggest challenges or lessons learnt that you've found in the first year in this role?
0: Um, One of the challenges I think has been understanding who works in the sports sector so when i say the sector i mean anyone who works for a state sporting association like um, hockey victoria equestrian victoria uh, cams motorcycling um, you know war apollo all of these organizations that act as a governing body for every single athlete and official that wants to compete or participate in that there are hundreds of these there are 120 something of them that we fund as sport and rec victoria and The fascinating thing from my perspective is actually how, and this is not meant in any way to be disrespectful, but just how many of them are very grassroots. There's nowhere near enough salaries paying the people that work in them. They're reliant on volunteers, passion, commitment, patience, you know, people having endurance when they probably don't have the facilities, the budget, the intel or the skills that they probably need to help support their athletes and officials. So... Running on a smell of an oily rag is actually the situation for a lot of sporting organisations and definitely for a lot of sporting clubs. So that amazed me because I'd been naive. I'd been an athlete and my my understanding of how sport worked was completely selfishly from an athlete's perspective not from an official or an event organizer or even a administrator's perspective and now i feel like i have a much broader perspective on what it's like to run an event what it's like to um, oversee a board all of these things and so i have greater sympathy for the the fact that a lot of organizations struggle to change that being said i think that That's the thing that I find difficult is the the reluctance to change. And as I said earlier in my comments around having patients whose health isn't good, we realise that um, so many people can't see a way to change their behaviour. They can't necessarily see how they would modify something to become more healthy. So then when you're asking them to change the way they run sport, to ask them to have a board quota, to have more women on their board, to ask them to include girls girls in the rostering of access to facilities like football grounds and tennis courts and basketball courts and swimming pool lanes, a lot of them come back with, whoa, 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 we've been doing it this way for 50 years or 80 years, et cetera. We can't go changing now, what will that mean? And that to me is fascinating because what we're seeing uh, with so many sports is that there's been a rapid growth in participation of girls and women, particularly in soccer, AFL, and not the facilities to support them. And what we also see in other sports is that there's waning participation because uh, women are are dropping out of sport and physical exercise activities because they don't feel included, they don't feel part of it, they feel like it's a boys' club. Uh, There aren't the systems in place to support them. And yet the people in charge are not always very rapid at responding to that. They're not able to say, okay, this is an issue in our sport in our club we're losing membership what should we do differently they keep doing the same thing and expecting a different result
2: so we're going to delve a bit more into your role as the ceo of office for Women in sport and recreation a little bit later i just want to discuss a little bit around your recently released book life and death a cycling memoir what inspired you to write this book and what is it about
0: Initially, um, I started writing it in um, August of last year over the winter. I hadn't raced or trained as much through that winter for the first time in about 10 or 11 years. And um, I had a lot of stories to tell. I'd done a lot of blogging and um, article writing when I was racing in Europe and America. So I just started putting together some of my stories, and then it just kept coming out and out. And over this sort of course of seven to eight weeks, I basically had thrown together this whole manuscript um, about my experiences of racing in Australia, Europe, not being selected. And I guess from my perspective, and it doesn't sound very sexy or cool, but um, I feel like a lot of sporting memoirs are all about winners. And the general arc of the story is I was, I was talented. I got identified. I became great. There was some hardship. I became great again. I won an Olympic gold medal, the end. And Obviously, my experience and hundreds of other people like me and particularly professional female athletes, the experience is nothing like that. And it's actually filled with a litany of difficulties that are, that do shape you to be a better human being, but also um, to outline that women's professional sport has a very long way to go to, to achieve any of the, the pay parity or the media profile or the status of men's professional sport. So from my perspective, it, it did cover that part selfishly, it was me just wanting to tell my story. Um, but more importantly, I felt like this was something that were, would resonate with a lot of people. Um, and even just describing uh, themes around risk-taking, around career change, around uh, the idea that just because other people think you're too old to do something or to try something doesn't make it true. And that's certainly a lot of feedback I've had from people who've read it. You know, my mum's not a cyclist or a cycling fan. But she said, I got a lot out of this book. A lot of her friends got a lot out of this book about women changing careers and trying things in their 30s and their 40s. And then it was quite serendipitous that once I'd finished the book and I'd sent it to some publishers and heard back from one publisher in Slattery who do a lot of work in sport, um, that I also then applied for the job that I'm in now. So... It was never, you know, I was working as a physician at the time. I never imagined that there would be a job that the Victorian government would invest uh, in an office that would help change our game for sport and active recreation for girls and women around participation facilities and leadership. So I really did come to this job in a way with um, a bit more of a profile around my lived experience. And um, whilst you don't, no one ever writes a book to be a bestseller and make a living. Um, I think what it's done is also it's it's started that conversation for a lot of people. And I do get people coming up to me and saying oh, that I've never met or I don't know and saying I read your book, it was amazing. I gave it to my daughters. You know, they play netball or they play hockey or they tried to be a professional tennis player and they found there was hardship and they they were really pleased to hear that they're not alone. Uh, I think people want their leaders to be authentic these days. I think that people want leaders who have had lived experience that can be flawed and difficult. No one wants to be led by a person who's, who behaves as though they've never had hardship and doesn't feel challenges. And so I think that helps uh, It helps me with credibility in the sector as well, that I, I see how a sport can be run. I, I've experienced how it can be done poorly um, and how it can be done brilliantly. And I want to help contribute to make some of those changes.
2: A year ago you were appointed CEO at the Offices for Women, Sport and Recreation at the Victorian Government. What is the purpose of this role and what are the KPIs you're striving for?
0: Our purpose is to level the playing field for women and girls in sport and active recreation in Victoria. And that Traverses a few pillars, one of which is around participation. So we know that girls drop out of sport at different times during their um, adolescence, and women do after pregnancy and in, in a sort of uh, postmenopausal periods of their lives. Uh, We also know that in terms of participation that we don't see anywhere near as many women in competitive sport. So women are choosing things that are flexible, that fit in around maybe their jobs, their caregiving roles, etc. They're not members of clubs and sporting organisations at the same rates that men are, uh, and they don't engage in competition uh, of all sorts of sports and active recreation um, as much as men and boys do. So starting to address that, make opportunities um, attractive to women and girls, to make them safe, welcoming, uh, to change culture around that for participation. The second pillar is around leadership, which is something we discussed earlier, and that's how do we get more women in visible leadership roles? Not just to be CEOs and presidents, but we want women to have visible authority, and that means more women referees, umpires, and coaches. Looking at the AFLW as an example, there are now 10 teams that are gonna be playing for season three of AFLW, and none of those teams has a woman coach, head coach. We know that girls and women, when they are umpires and referees, get screamed at You know, five to eight times more than if they were a boy or a, or a man. The parents feel very free to scream abuse and vitriol at a female umpire, goal umpire, or even at the under-14s uh, volleyball team. They will scream at that coach if she's not done the right thing by their 11-year-old son, who undoubtedly is going to be a superstar. Uh, And certainly um, we want to see more women leading sport and running sport and something that Kate Palmer has talked about recently, Sport Australia are putting a huge focus on why there aren't more women as CEOs, administrators, presidents, etc. So even just bringing this to the conversation helps national sporting organisations and state sporting associations address that. Now, part of our um, charter is to have a quota. We have a board quota deadline by the 1st of July, 2019. Sports have had a three year lead up period to this. And if they're a sport funded by the state government, they need to have 40% women on their board by the 1st of July. And if they don't, they risk losing funding or not getting any ongoing funding. And what's been really interesting in that discussion is we have over 100 sports that are funded by Victoria um, to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. And talking to some of those sports, all of those CEOs and presidents are at varying levels of behaviour change around the concept of gender equality. Some are at the totally we get it and we're on it, and they're already way past 40%. Some of the, yeah, yeah, we know why, but gee, how are we supposed to do that? And we're not up for a new re-election or we don't have an AGM in that time, and gee, what, what will we do? And then there are some pretty resistant people as to why, why should we do this? I'm not against women being on boards, but there just are no women that are interested in this particular sport or we, they don't know how to do it and therefore they're not qualified or we can't just hire any woman. So educating those and supporting those organizations is a big part of what we're gonna be doing over the next eight months. And then the third thing that which we've discussed a little earlier as well is around facilities. So participation, leadership and facilities and addressing the issues around girls and women's safety, their access to facilities. Um, change rooms, toilets, particularly um, all universal design. So universal design addresses the need for people with all abilities to be able to access sporting facilities. So you might have a physical disability, um, you may be intersex or non-binary, you may be a trans woman. You might want privacy, so that this whole open showers, open urinals, are one way of delivering a sport change room to the to, to the public needs mm. to change. Sure. And then facilities also covers, as we said earlier as well, not just the change rooms and toilets, but is there adequate lighting? Is it safe to walk from the car park to the club? Uh, are the drain, is the drainage of those grounds appropriate so that the grounds and the fields can be used for hours on end? Because with more teams, there are more people who want to run around on those fields and adequate drainage is a huge part of it, particularly in Victoria, New South Wales with AFL, soccer, cricket, etc., and then club rooms is a really important one. You know, If you walk into a, a regional Australian cricket, footy or netball club, chances are there'll be pictures of men in frames and pictures of men's trophies and pictures of male players yeah. and trophies that have been won by men's teams. And girls and women that walk into that club say to me and they say to everyone, this doesn't look like a place where girls and women play sport. Yeah. So changing that conversation without erasing history and removing the legacy of those sporting organisations, we want to say... Let's be more inclusive to everyone, so that girls and women and men and boys can all walk through the door of a club and say, "I want to play here. I want to be a member here, or I want to volunteer here. How can I help? And and how can I be welcomed?"
3: Well, oh, so you know, Bridie, it's it's almost common sense, but unfortunately, it's not very common, is it?
0: No, it's not, and look for a lot of people, um, and again, coming back to physical and health literacy, people are really good at finding the hundred reasons why they can't change their behavior. So we also need to remember that, that I've sat across from someone who's been a smoker for their whole life and they've got heart disease and pre-diabetes. They know that, di- that their smoking is contributing to those things or worsening them, yet they don't quit smoking. Mm-hmm. So it just shows you that not only is nicotine a very powerful addiction, but that also the behaviour around smoking is very difficult to change. And even when a person has disease, they can't stop smoking. Then we've got to give some credence to the fact that changing behaviour around what does our club look like? How do we speak? Do we use homophobic or racist slurs when we're denigrating a male player Mm -hmm. by calling him a girl? How do we change that person's attitude? It actually is quite challenging. Yeah. It requires yeah. people with courage and great strength to be able to say to a person who's using that language, don't do that. We don't do that here. And so this this requires not only leadership from top down, from the AFL, and I have to say that you know one of the greatest shames of our time in sport, I think, has been the way and the manner in which Adam Goods exited the game of AFL um, and that was not helped by the overarching body not supporting um, anti-racist behaviour and booing of him on the field and I think that's been a great loss to him and to the sport. So when you've got a governing body that says no, no to racism, no to homophobia, uh, no to transphobia, then people at grassroots feel like they have an authorizing environment to then say to their teammate, mate, you can't use that language, don't use that, don't say that about that person. Uh, We we let all people in here and we welcome them. So approaches need to come from everywhere. And as I said, from the outset, there are incredibly willing, passionate, motivated and, and people full of heart that are working and volunteering in sport, but their voices are often overshadowed by the louder, more powerful voices that are often stuck maybe back in the 50s or the 60s or the 70s. So we need to change that balance and allow everyone to have a voice at the table. It's
2: been interesting in triathlon, we've had you know, very good gender diversity across the, the whole spectrum of the sport from it for a very long time, but it does swing in roundabouts too. And you know, I came when I first came into triathlon, we had a, a very balanced mix of male, female, cross, executive directors and even presidents and it's swung to pretty much all-male and it's happened the same on the the state presidents now and the tone changes but we can't control it to a certain extent because it depends on each state and they have their own provisions so that's something that we're finding in our conversations now is how do we bring that back as a collective Mm. to ensure that we have those different voices that everyone can be heard. We have different perspectives coming across. And, and obviously, as I mentioned to you earlier today, we've got our first ever female president of Triathlon Australia, and I think that's a fantastic move. And hopefully that inspires to get more female presidents into states, um, state presidents. And, and obviously we're seeing it at Cobb level, but we just need to see that transfer into that middle section uh, a lot more effectively. Um, so I'm a little bit cautious of time here. So um, we all know smart people have great answers, But the best people have great questions. So when was the last time you did something for the first time?
0: I do something for the first time nearly every day. Uh, this job has been in equal parts a privilege and thrilling and completely terrifying. So um, I would have to say the first time I, I went surfing a week ago, um, it was the anniversary of 12 months of, of this office. So I took my team of three who are absolutely amazing, uh, Rebecca Lacey, Elise Caffarella and Heather Mofflin, and we had our uh, team bonding strategy day. We went down to Torquay and we had a surf lesson. Uh, with the CEO of Surfing Victoria, he taught us all how to surf and I stood up on a board for the very first time and it was absolutely awesome and I totally sucked at it. But <laughs> we just kept doing it over and over again. Heather and Elise were awesome and Beck and I were, I was more of a knee boarder. I was a bit more Reen Corbett, you know, uh, a Grant Kenny than I would have been um, Tyler Wright.
2: Is there one question that you love to ask yourself or ask of other people that's like a favorite question for you?
0: Because I was a behavior change physician, I, I would always try and challenge people as to why they were doing things the same way, or why they weren't trying something. And I've, I love the expression around courage being feeling the fear and doing it anyway. And so what I frequently ask people is, um, why wouldn't you do that? You, you can tell me all these reasons why you wouldn't, but really, what's the worst that can happen? You might fail at it. You might look silly you look uncoordinated, you don't get that job, uh, you ask that person out, they say no thanks. But I think we need to all try and be more courageous yep. and be prepared to fail at things, because failure is actually, I've failed at things nearly every day of my life um, and redefining what that word means. So I ask people to try things every day and see what happens. It's hmm. very powerful.
2: And the last question uh, for today is who's had the greatest impact on your career and why?
0: Um, that's a great question. I would have to say my parents in, in equal but different ways. Um, they're incredibly hardworking, honest, uh, kind, generous people. Um, not, not everyday people. They're both exceptional in many ways. My father's a polymath. My mother's a, a, f- a force majeure. But they're ordinary in the ways that they honour important values around love, dedication, honesty, effort, work, um, and humour.
2: Yeah, such great values to uphold and, and within any family or any environment. So um, Bridie, it's been an absolute pleasure to interview you today. Uh, you know, we've talked a lot about disruption and change and, and evolving things and just being able to have that strength to say we have to change our behaviour and let's get all on board and move forward. Um, we've got an insight into you as a person who's very dedicated, very devoted, um, very driven and just loves to take on a challenge and just find out, you know, it's not about, can I already do this? It's like, what can I do? Where is, is there a limit? Where can I keep going? So it's very inspiring. So thank you very much for your, your time and um, we look forward to seeing many positive changes happening with inside the sporting landscape and wherever you lead in the future.
0: Thank you, Craig. Thanks for having me on.
2: You're welcome.
3: Today's active CEO wellness tip is about the three C's for success.
2: We're talking about commitment, consistency, and control. And this is all about, you know, like at some point in your career, you're going to have to have a goal around losing weight. I mean, it can be a real challenge to maintain that healthy weight, especially if you are constantly traveling, having dinner meetings, socializing with clients, working extremely long hours, sitting at a desk, and under high levels of stress. Absolutely, you know, and probably one that I would bring
3: up also would be about uh, the way that you're managing your drinking. And you, you have to first recognize that, but you have to be committed to try and cutting that down. You have to be consistent in that effort and you have to control what you're doing as you go along.
2: Yeah, it's a commitment to a healthy lifestyle and it's about it's 80% mental. And without the mental strength and commitment to your life change, it is unlikely to last yeah
3: any type of success requires consistent c- consistency over a period of time there's no doubt about that yep even
2: when you feel tired or frustrated or cranky you know you need that self-control to say no to a beer or a calorie filled dessert or a second take at the breakfast buffet and the burger bar it's uh,
3: it's always the most difficult time when you are tired or when you're traveling uh, when you're short of time to make the poor choices Um, that's when it happens. So you just got to catch yourself. You've got to be committed to what you're trying to do. Uh, Otherwise, it comes unraveled real quick.
2: Yeah, you can ensure that you have enough time to sleep, rest, exercise, and enjoy the basic human rights of eating, resting, and exercising. All right, Ben, we, we had a very energizing and exciting interview today with Bridie O'Donnell, the CEO for the Women's Office of Sport, Victoria Government what a game changer. What an amazing person. I really enjoyed speaking with her and just
3: talking about the more the nuts and bolts of of how to change the game. Things like going out into the field and and finding there wasn't enough uh, change rooms or facilities for the ladies to use within sport. It's just things that you think are common sense, and I think I might
2: have said it during the podcast, are not very common. It's amazing. Yeah, You know, we all think Oh, you know, everyone has any opportunities. It's up to the woman to just get on with it and, yeah. and have a crack, but there are barriers. Absolutely. And there are things, you know, the, the way that networks are created and the way things have been done to people to change their mindset and allow it to be more open, you know, requires that catalyst. Mm. And, and I think Bridie is a perfect person to be catalyzing this, you know, change your game or change our game approach that they've got there with the females. And ensuring that the community and the facilities and the infrastructure are there to ensure that we can get more, more women active and girls and, and ensuring that they get to appreciate the, the wonderful benefits that we have from health and wellness, sport in the community.
3: Absolutely. And very eloquent in the way that she uh, describes the situation uh, for females in, in leadership positions and in sport. Um, and really... Just enjoyable to to hear and learn, and I, I know that I'm energised to participate in that more than what I might have in the past, and
2: um, I hope that it continues in the future. It's not easy to change your career, and she's done it three times in her very young adult life, and she's going from your medicine where you learn about it's it, it's caring for people, it's finding solutions. Yeah, that was an amazing story, wasn't it? Yeah, and and been able to take that and then go into a life as a professional cyclist where it's all about you. Mm. You get absolutely nothing for giving your heart and soul and everything. And a lot of the time you're giving it your heart and soul and your energy for someone else to win. Yeah, absolutely. And she was talking about, was it 50 euro a week or something like that and, and yep. sleeping in bunk beds. Yep. And yeah. It wasn't a
3: whole lot of glamour about that professional sport.
2: <sighs> no, and we can maybe delve in that, into that later on with you know some of our future guests around what that lifestyle is like. They yeah. don't live in five-star hotels. Yeah. They don't get to eat great food all the time. They don't have much money apart from maybe the top 10, 10, 50, you know, sort of pro cyclists. The rest are really struggling and yeah. it's a real fight and it's a real battle.
3: It's really at the coalface, isn't it? Yeah. On a daily. It's, it was really fascinating and I'd love to
2: delve into that a little bit more. Yeah, and I'm looking forward, you know, she do, we talked about it wasn't just that, you know, that facilities aspect, it's around that leadership and that coaching aspect and you look at, um you know, women's afl women's sport but there are zero female coaches in that wafl league yeah, and how about that that was amazing stat yeah and there has been one but she's now come out and doing another role which mm. is which is a real shame because we really need to see that accelerate and it's great to see kate palmer with sport australia and some other initiatives happening around around the world where they're going to have to provide some imp- um interventions to make this occur it's not something we can just go all right, it's going to build until we have 50-50 gender equality across the sport. It's not going to happen like that. And We've seen that with the boards already where they're going, okay, there must be a 40% um, minimum for each gender uh, in in boards and to ensure that we're developing first just a gender diversity and, and I'm sure in the future then that will go out to more of a cultural diversity and an age demographic diversity amongst those boards as well. I still think the biggest challenge for me is how do we get more females into – high performance uh, high performance coaching roles leadership roles Uh, especially when you know you've got to be in a lot of those roles you're traveling you might be overseas for half of the year Uh, a big challenge that once you step outside of that for a break for whatever reason and and say for females that would generally be because they're having a child it is not easy to get back in again because you need that momentum building so that i i'm it's going to be very interesting and fascinating for me and hopefully i can be involved in some ways to help find solutions for that because i think it is crucial i think the way uh, female coaches their perspective and their different characteristics that they bring from males can really make a big difference in that high performance space
3: you know, Craig, um, Brody brought this up and it's not only about creating the opportunity or having the opportunity there, but it's also creating the, safe where you can, the, the space where you can make mistakes and mature as a coach rather than having to be a success in your first season. Um, you see a lot of male coaches are offered that ability, they can build into their career, they can learn, they have mentors, they're given, dare I say, a little bit more slack to develop their skill set. Um, so we want to ensure that that happens for our female coaches too.
2: Yes, and, and she talked about Raylene Castles and we're going to be interviewing Absolutely, her in, yeah. uh, in a few weeks' time. And, you know, she was under the microscope from day one. And from it, her
3: looks, from the way she dressed. I mean, no one talks about that in male coaches. That's it's for, craziness. It's for
2: all the wrong things. Yep. And I think that's just people, you know, some people who are taking an ego hit there and I think they need to just sit back and give her the opportunity, give her the support that they are needed, like we would for any male CEO, any male leader um, in the future. That's the Active CEO podcast for this week. Where the ordinary don't belong.
1: Join the Active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG2Perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG2Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.